The first reading is taken from 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 16 to 21. You will find that in your New Testament pages, page 232. 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 16. For it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If you invoke as father the one who judges all people impartially according to their deeds, live in reverent fear during the time of your exile. You know that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without defect or blemish. He was destined before the foundation of the world, but was revealed at the end of the ages for your sake. Through him, you have come to trust in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are set on God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, today we continue with the sermon series about what Christians believe and Maybe you've noticed we've been following the Apostles' Creed as a, a loose outline for this series. Last week, Sam introduced us to uh, Jesus with a reflection on who Jesus is. And today, we continue to think about Jesus, but we begin to think about what Jesus did, what he, what he came among us to do. And, and what he came a, among us to do is summarized in the word uh, atonement which means a, a reconciling of the world to God, uh, making things right once again. We'll talk about what that means. Today is a day on the, the church calendar, as I mentioned to the children, uh, that is known as the Feast of the Transfiguration. And those of you who grew up in more liturgical churches uh, know that this, this day always precedes the beginning of Lent. So the, the Sunday before Ash Wednesday is always the, the Feast of the Transfiguration. Uh, the story I'm about to uh, read is in many ways a turning point in, in Jesus' ministry. His whole life, of course, is a journey to the cross. Uh, but uh, after today, there's no longer any doubt uh, about what he has come to do. It becomes painfully obvious uh, with this story. So the, the story of the transfiguration occurs in each of the first three Gospels. And, and I invite you to read it with me, to read Matthew's account with me. Uh, uh, which is found in chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17, beginning with the first verse. Six days later, G Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud a voice said, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up and do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one 
except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them, tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Dear friends of Jesus Christ, we, we are going to talk about something very difficult today. And uh, I guess I say that to you as uh, a way of warning you uh, right at the beginning. It's not that the previous sermons in this series were so uh, easy. Uh, What I mean is that the subject for today, which is the crucifixion uh, of Christ, is so difficult to think about. Uh, It's difficult in in at least two senses. One is the the death itself, which was unimaginably brutal and and violent and bloody. It was the favorite method of execution for the Romans because it sent such a powerful message. And so what this means is that Jesus' death is so difficult that we, 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 we tend to avoid it altogether. I mean, how would you explain it to a child? Right? How would you do a children's sermon about the crucifixion? You already noticed what I did this morning. I found out this week that in Sunday school we tend not to talk about it at all. This subject that is in some ways central to our faith. Uh, Instead, we we, we tend to move so quickly to the resurrection, which is a subject we're happy to to talk about. So we talk to children about butterflies and how the the caterpillar is transformed. We try our best, in other words, to make something that is very difficult and very troubling seem beautiful and inoffensive. I mean, who's offended by the thought of a butterfly emerging from a cocoon? Uh, But I want you to see that this subject, the the crucifixion of of Christ, is difficult for another reason. And and you may not be aware of this, but in the last uh, last 10 to 20 years, the crucifixion has been the subject of intense debate among theologians. They've been revisiting all of the old questions, uh, such as, why did Jesus have to die? And was it really necessary? Uh, Couldn't God have accomplished what he needed to accomplish in some other way? And and, and why did he have to die in this way? In such a brutal and violent and humiliating manner. Uh, Even the doctrine of the Trinity, which we haven't gotten to yet, we we will. Uh, Even the the doctrine of the Trinity becomes part of this conversation. Because how is it that a loving God would seek vengeance on an innocent son? What kind of father-son relationship would that be? I think it's interesting that the book of the year, last year, according to Christianity Today, is titled, The Crucifixion. Understanding the death of Jesus Christ. And I used a quotation from that book at the very beginning of your worship order today, partly to show you that people, Christian people, are still talking about this subject. They're still trying to find the language to say what we believe. And and I I don't find this troubling, by the way. You may wonder why uh, people are bothering to uh, keep talking about it. Your response uh, might be, hasn't that question been settled? Why are we still arguing about it? But I don't find this troubling uh, at all. In some ways, I find it exciting. I mean, to think that 2,000 years after the event... No, we're still trying to understand it. We're still trying to get it right. 
You could say that each new generation has to confront the fact of Jesus' death and, and, and somehow come to terms with it. Uh, the author of that uh, prize-winning book I mentioned, Fleming Rutledge, is an American preacher, uh, not a theologian, at least not in the academic uh, sense of that word, though she's very much a scholar and a, uh, a careful thinker. And, and she writes that she's been thinking about this subject since she was 13 years old. What does it mean, she wondered as a teenager, that Jesus died for the sin of the world? Uh, and of course, it's not just 13-year-olds uh, who, who grew up to be pastors and, and preachers who wonder about that question. Uh, I want to come back to Fleming Rutledge in, a, uh, in just a bit, uh, but I want to mention that the crucifixion uh, has been raising questions for people from the beginning. The church in Corinth, uh, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, the church in Corinth must have been a difficult place to be a member. Uh, if you don't believe me, read those two letters uh, sometime. These people were tough on each other, and they were tough on their pastors. They must have complained one time to Paul about his preaching. They were hoping for something comforting or an inspiring message filled with advice for finding inner peace and strength or something like that. And Paul, I mean, this made them so angry, Paul kept talking about the cross. In his first letter to that troubled church, second chapter, Paul writes, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come proclaiming the mystery of God to you in lofty words or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So Paul, and I think this is so interesting to think about, Paul made the cross the center of his message. He had one sermon. He had one theme, and that was it. And the question is why? No one liked it. The Jewish members of that congregation hated it, and, and so did the Gentiles for that matter. In the first chapter of, of that first letter to the Corinthians, Paul wrote, we proclaim Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to the Jews, and foolishness to the Greeks. And the question, of course, is why did he continue to do it? Uh, I think you know, or, or I think you at least suspect, the answer to that question. Uh, until we get this right... Until we confront the cross in all of its ugliness and, and pain, and until we surrender ourselves to, to the power of it, we have not really understood it deep down. We have not understood what the gospel is about. Look, I, I, I want to make the most basic statement that I think is possible to make about this subject. And, and frankly, this is the scandal of our faith. All the religions of the world uh, have certain traits in common. Someone once wrote, I, I saw this last week, someone once wrote that there are 15 traits that all the religions of the world share, ranging from the golden rule, do unto others, as you, know, you would have them do unto you, uh, to the importance of peace. Blessed are the, the, the peacemakers. And if we took time this morning, we could probably think about all the, the, the ones that fall in between. And do you know something? I, I suppose there is some truth to that. There are similarities. Jesus, Buddha, Krishna, Muhammad, Shankara, Confucius, we're, we're, we're tempted to say, or we, we want to believe, that we, they all believe pretty much the same thing. Except, of course, that's not true. Right? Which I think you know. 
And as, as Fleming Rutledge puts it, until the gospel of Jesus Christ burst upon the Mediterranean world, no one in the history of human imagination had conceived of such a thing as the worship of a crucified man. When the Apostle Paul wrote his letter to the Romans, he says in the very first chapter, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And, and, and that's a peculiar way to begin, I would say. I'm not ashamed. Right? What is there to be ashamed of? And then you begin to realize that our faith is built on a very peculiar premise. Namely, that an itinerant Jewish preacher had been nailed up one day alongside two of society's losers so that they could all die horribly and in full view of everyone who walked by and the Romans made sure that everyone could see it. The executions were unavoidable. And Jesus' death didn't exactly result in victory, not right away. Uh, what he left behind after three years of work was a small group of demoralized followers, uh, most of whom had run away at the time of his arrest, and for days, uh, days afterward, they huddled together behind locked doors out of fear. They had no social status, they had no education, and beyond that, most of them were from a, a region of the, the country that, frankly, it was embarrassing to be from. This was the most improbable start to a religion that any religion ever had. To think that this was the beginning of a world-transforming movement would have been laughable at the time. And yet that's what happened slowly at first and then gradually gaining momentum. This faith became a movement that was to transform hundreds of millions of lives. And it continues to transform lives today. In my first seminary preaching class, my classmates and I were each assigned a verse from the Bible to, to preach about, and, and so we were each given a different verse, and, and then after a week or so of preparation, we each went to the pulpit of the, the uh, uh, seminary chapel to preach our sermon, not, not as easy as it might sound, and, and the Bible verse that I was given was Romans 1, verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Well, it was a terrible sermon. I'll, I'll be honest with you, and I, I know that today, and I, I, to, be, I, to be honest, I knew it then. Uh, my preaching professor should have told me uh, what my piano teacher told my mother uh, all those years ago, that there was no future uh, for me. <laughs> uh, my biggest problem as a preacher, of course, was that I had no experience standing in a pulpit. But the other problem, and it was a much more serious problem, was that I had no idea what it meant to be ashamed. I had no idea at the time that the gospel of Jesus Christ was a scandal, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. I mean, I grew up like many of our children at IPC thinking only of butterflies emerging from cocoons. Everyone I knew was a Christian, so where was the shame? Uh, and so I, I've spent the better part of my life since that first awful sermon trying to figure out what it means that Jesus died for me, what, what, it, what it means that my life has hope and meaning and purpose because of what he did for me on the cross. Uh, I think that one of the first things I learned was that I, I, I would never get it right. My words, as much as I love them, will always be inadequate. The cross and what happened there is so far beyond human understanding that I will never get it exactly right. I try, of course, and, and, and the writer in me is always looking for the, you know, the right combination of words, but I know now that I will never quite get it. 
The cross is at once uh, terrible and wonderful. The the cross is at once the worst method of, of execution ever devised. Arguably, it is. And at the same time, it's a beautiful reminder of the depth of God's love for us. So the best I can say is that the cross is a mystery and, 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 and it demands that we look at it. Right? That, that we confront it and face up to it and it demands that we take Jesus seriously. Uh, 30 years or so ago, a, a, a seeker-friendly uh, movement, a seeker-friendly worship movement, uh, began to sweep through American churches, and I know it's made it, it has made its way to other continents as well. And, and the idea was to remove everything that was offensive uh, from the sanctuary, uh, so that when a, a, a seeker entered the, the sanctuary, he or she would hear the gospel proclaimed without distracting elements. So uh, one of the first things to go, of course, were crosses. And anything else that might cause an offense. Offering plates, too. No one likes to be asked for money. They had to go. Uh, hymn books, gone. And, and a host of other things that we might count as familiar trappings of church life. And, and, and what was wrong with that? Let me just say, in, in defense of those pastors and, and those churches, that the impulse was exactly right. I mean, I admire the instinct. The, the, these, these pastors and these churches had a heart for, for spiritual seekers that most of us do not have. They were trying their best to bring people in and to present the gospel to them. But the irony, and I, I mean, I suppose it's more than just an irony. The, the irony is that it, it, removing the cross from the center of the church's life empties the gospel of its meaning. Without the cross, we have no faith. Just as we have no faith without the empty tomb. Without the cross, we have the golden rule and the Beatitudes, but we don't have what Jesus came among us to do. The world, as as we saw a couple of weeks ago, was created good. And in fact, it was not only good and lovely, but after six days of creation, God sat back and and surveyed what what he had created, and and he said, it's very good. And you can sense his delight as he says it. Unfortunately, his delight did not last long. By by Genesis chapter 3, the the, the world God had created was in rebellion. And and so what was made good and, and lovely and perfect became stained by sin. And instead of turning his back on what he had created, and instead of destroying it all and starting over again, God decided to make things right again. To restore things to the way they were meant to be. I mean, this was no vengeful God uh, taking out his anger on, on his son. I mean, this was a loving God deciding within himself, Father, Son, and, and Holy Spirit, a mutual decision that something had to be done. And the only way to do it was to come into the world in weakness and powerlessness to offer himself as a last sacrifice. To take all of the sin and misery and despair in the world on himself in one heroic moment. And he did it. And and life will never be the same. Your lives will never be the same because of what he did. We are free. 
We have been set free from sin and guilt and uh, from all of the pain and hopelessness that go with them. We no longer have to feel inadequate and worthless and as though no one could possibly love us or understand us. God has come again. God has come again to take control of the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but may have eternal life. My friends, this is what we believe. Isn't this the meaning of what Jesus came among us to do? Amen. Amen. Amen.